The following is a production of C3 Studios. Today's episode is brought to you by Wiffles Hybrids. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Above the Fold with the Ag Communicators Network, a podcast discovering the latest headlines and stories in ag media. I'm Kelsey Litchfield with Colleen Callahan Consultancy and C3 Studios, and your host for today's episode. Today, I begin a series that started on the premise of what I wish I'd known in my 20s. An episode that I recorded a couple years back with Joanne Allenbaugh inspired this series. But as I was recording the interviews, I realized the lessons we talked about weren't just from our 20s. I mean, of course, we learned a lot about ourselves and our career goals during our 20s. But these lessons aren't just limited to that decade. Each and every step of our journey prepares us for the next chapter. And I was able to walk through these moments with my guests. Each of the stories are different from the next guest, and it reconfirms for me that we are individuals and our paths are different from everyone else, and we should own what makes ourselves truly unique. Now, I haven't quite come up with another name for this series. Uh, I thought about maybe what I'd wish I'd known earlier in my career or Here's what life has taught me so far, and the jury's still out on those decisions, but I'll let you decide what to call this series, because we'll all learn something different from these episodes. On today's episode, I bring you an interview with Betsy Fries, former executive editor at Successful Farming, and now enjoying life as a retiree. I was fascinated by her story of how she landed her job at Successful Farming and of her perseverance, her assertiveness, and her confidence. And she spent over 30 years within the same organization, and she continued to grow. She worked her way up and then retired because she started saving money for retirement at a young age. But she wasn't always living in the Midwest. She grew up on a farm in Maryland raising pigs, and her father started a pick-your-own-strawberry operation when she was a teenager. But when it came to picking a college, she didn't want to follow in her family's footsteps to Penn State and also be known as Molly's little sister. So Betsy did her research on ag journalism schools and found one about 1,100 miles away in Ames, Iowa. But there was another reason that attracted her to Iowa State. I loved the swine industry, and I knew that there were a lot of pigs in Iowa. This was my reasoning. (laughs) I thought, you know, I might meet like a rich pig farmer out there at school or something. (laughs) Instead, I went to Iowa State and I met uh, my husband who was a a pre-vet, you know, so he had no money. He was studying hard and going to vet school. I ended up putting him through vet school, (laughs) uh, working at Successful Farming. We got married in between my junior and senior year of undergrad. I mean, why? Who does that? It just was insanity. But he was starting vet school. We knew we wouldn't see each other very often. And, um, Believe it or not, back then, you know, you just didn't live together. It 
our parents, both sets of family were quite, you know, strong religious believers. And, and it would have been a shock to the grandmas, I'm sure, if we had lived together. So we got married. We had no money. Didn't have two dimes to rub together. But our parents helped us with food and with um, loaning money for cars and down payments for things. And um, so we, we made it through. You know, my degree was ag journalism. And I knew that with Bob and vet school, I had to stay in the Des Moines area. So I looked at all kinds of journalism jobs. And actually, I took the first job I took, and it was only for two weeks, because then I got offered the job at Successful Farming. But there was a job at the Nevada, Iowa Journal, which was a newspaper. And my emphasis had been in magazines. And of course, nowadays, you don't want to just have an emphasis in one thing or another, because you have to do web work, you have to do audio, you have to do video. But back then, you really had an emphasis. And my emphasis was magazine work. And other people's was newspaper or radio or uh, TV. But um, I took the job at the Nevada Journal because I needed a job. You know, I had to put bread on the table. So I didn't enjoy it. I was writing obituaries. I was going to city council meetings and where people fought over who had to pay for a strip of sidewalk and that kind of thing. But I had met Lauren Cruz, who was the um, managing editor at Successful Farming. He had been he had been to campus and he had helped out with these mock interviews. And in these mock interviews, you were just supposed to learn how to interview. And I thought to myself, the heck with that. I put on my the only suit I had, which was a left um, hand me down for my mother who worked as a librarian. So she had sent me a suit. I wore her suit. I took my clipbook from working summers at the Delmarva Farmer in um, Easton, Maryland. They, every summer I would go home and work there. And I, I got to write a lot of stories. I wrote like 50 different stories there. So I had this clipbook and I went in and I told Lauren, this isn't a mock interview. I want a job. If you ever have an opening at Successful Farming, it's it, there in Des Moines. This would be my dream job. And he, I think he was a little taken aback because he said later, you know, it was kind of shocking how upfront and aggressive and direct I was. But see, growing up on the East Coast, that's just the way people are. I was, I was much more shy and reserved for an East Coast woman I mean my sister is you know louder and more aggressive than me anyway so but he, he remembered me and I took this job at the Nevada Journal and Lauren called me I got home one night from a city council meeting and my husband said Lauren Cruz called here about a job and so I called him back. It was 11 o'clock at night. I woke him up. I'm like, oh, hi, Lauren. I'm going back. <laughs> I guess he had given me his home number. But anyway, Dean Houghton, who was the swine, one of the swine editors, there were two swine editors, Gene Johnson and Dean Houghton. But Dean had left because Farm Journal started up Hogs Today. Yes, Hogs Today. And they hired Dean. 
And so there was an opening for the swine editor. And I'm like, yes, I would love to come interview for that. So I went down and interviewed and I was, I had to interview with uh, Rich Crooming, who was the editor in chief at the time. And Rich, anybody who worked with Rich or knows him, God bless him. He's, he lives, you know, down the road from us. I see him every now and then, but uh, he, he was hardcore. I mean, he was one tough cookie and I got very nervous. I lost my voice. I had like dry mouth and couldn't talk. And, um, he told Lauren, well, I wouldn't hire her, but you know, he was asking me things like, tell me about the swine industry. Well, you know, how do you even start? And I was 21 years old. So anyway, I failed that interview, but Lauren said, and Jean Johnston said, we like her. She can write. I mean, here's her clipbook. Forget the interview. Here's her clipbook. She can write. So I got the job. And then it, it's a matter at that point of just proving that you can do that job. Talk, we'll talk about that experience of having those people that believe in you. Because if it wasn't for them, you want to be where you are today, perhaps. That, that is very true. Um, you really have to have an advocate. You really have to, I, I think you do have to show that you could do the job. So the reason I got the job is because I had worked summers at the Delmarva Farmer and I had written about dairy farms and, and poultry farms and whatever they assigned me, I wrote about. And I had this thick clipbook. And the other thing I did was Jean Johnston remembered me because when I was at Iowa State, even as a sophomore and junior, I kept sending my lame stories that I wrote for classes about agriculture. I kept sending them to successful farming. <laughs> I sent Gene and I saved it. Uh, I did send him a story where I interviewed Max Rothschild, who was doing this at that time, really, really uh, revolutionary work on genetics, the genome of pigs. And it sounds common today, but nobody, you know, was really new then. And Gene had sent me back a very nice letter. You know, we had got actual letters back then in the mail saying that he could not purchase this. He, he, he couldn't uh, accept the story, but it was a good topic. I had done a good job with the interview and go ahead and try again. And I, I sent Gene probably three or four different stories because he was the um, senior swine editor at the time and none of them were accepted. And I sent the crop chemicals editor, uh, Chuck, a story as well, which was rejected. So I was soundly rejected in my stories. But when it came time to interview for that assistant swine editor job, Jean remembered me and thought, this girl is, you know, has some gumption and some get up and go and tries hard. And so I had my clipbook, I had that history of being annoying, I'm sure. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what you need as a journalist, right? right. And right. I mentored other young journalists over the years. And I always tell them, you have to be aggressive. You have to be 
nosy. You have to ask a lot of questions and, um, you know, you have to do it in a way that people open up to you. Right. I'd like to talk about that because I think nowadays people wait for opportunities to come to them and you can't just sit there and do that because you have to be able to pitch ideas, pitch stories. And to sum it up, you were taking advantage of the opportunities in front of you and going after them. And that, that also shows, you know, what you wanted to do, you know, and that, I think that helps a person, an individual stand out to someone. Well, you're absolutely right. Because it was the case then Uh, when I started out, and it's even more so the case now, the people that you report to, your bosses, they have their own jobs, they have their own responsibilities, their own work that has to get done and their own deadlines, and they can't spend their time coming up with story ideas for you or coming up with assignments for you. And so you have to show that you have ideas. And when you go to, you're trying to get a job, or you, you have your first job, have some, have some story ideas. Even if they're not very good, your boss can then kind of tweak them so they could work. I mean, Gene Johnston was my first boss. He was the senior swine editor. I was the assistant swine editor. And I would come up with ideas. And what Gene would do is he would say, here's somebody maybe you could interview for that. Or why don't you call the University of Illinois because they're, they're doing some work on that. So Gene would help me out that way. But he, he had his own stories to do, and it would not have worked if I just waited for assignments. And we, we did have, I did have some coworkers over the years that didn't, that didn't work out for that very reason, because they just couldn't come up with ideas. And I, I had um, about 15 or 16 different apprentices over the years as well. There was only one that didn't work out. And it was a case where she kind of sat in her cubicle and waited for me to come to her and say, here's some things you should be doing. And I didn't really have the time to do that. And then when I did give her an idea, she said, oh, I don't want to write about goats. And I thought, you know, this isn't a good fit. You have to be a go-getter with it. Yeah. You have to go out and find stories. And that's what I think the most unique stories come from. Sometimes just going out and showing up somewhere and you'll find a story, but it's, you can't just sit there and let them come to you. It was, and, and let me point out that it was harder pre-internet because the first mm-hmm. 10 years of my career were spent before the internet and to find stories and to find people's contact information was so much harder. You had to do so much more legwork to get stories than you do now, because now you say, let me just Google this topic and see who shows up, or I need the phone number for somebody. You Google it, you know, we did not have that. So um, it was, it, it took longer. And of course, but we did not have, also did not have the internet, which was like 24 seven telling you, hey, you need to be covering this story. You need to be writing about this story. We had our magazine work. We went home and we didn't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. 
Betsy, how do you, besides the internet or besides Googling, how do you find a good story at its core? Like, where do you begin? What's the process you've done over the years to turn that idea into a complete story? Any insight there? I mean, first you, you read other news. So you, you keep on top of what is, what is news, what's happening in agriculture. Um, and then you have to kind of think, what is, what is a spin I could do on it? Or could I interview some farmers for us, a human interest story on this? Or is there another angle? And then you know, in, in the old days, you basically, ha- you started by calling one person, everybody I call, by the way, and um, my pork powerhouses reports, probably the, the one series that I was the most known for in my career. And every, I had to, I had to talk to, you know, 70 different people every year for that report to cut, to narrow it down to the top 40 or 50 pork producers. But every mm-hmm. single person I talked to I always would say at the end, is there anything else you think I should be looking for? Is there anybody else you think I should talk to? Are there any other topics that I haven't mentioned? Or, um, And a lot of times they would say, well, I heard so-and-so is doing this. Or um, there's a company that, you know, I think they're going bankrupt or, you know, and so 90% of it was off the record, but it would give you it would give you an idea maybe. And, and in, in the course of doing that, you would come up with a lot more story ideas for other stories. Mm-hmm. Kind of that snowball effect of just leading on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Ne- never leave an interview without asking your source. Is there anything else that I should have asked? Or is there anything else you want to talk about or any topics that are important to you? Looking back at your younger years or however, however far back you want to look, are there any moments that were indicative of having a future in journalism, especially in agriculture? And then also at its core, why did you want to be a journalist? Was there something you believed you could do differently? Was it just natural curiosity? Digging a little bit deeper, why did you want to be in journalism? Yeah, those are, those are great questions. Um, I, even when I was a child, I loved to like write little stories down. And uh, my mom kept a journal. In fact, that's what I've been doing this, this uh, first year that I've been retired. I've been transcribing her journals from 1963. Mm-hmm. And she, she noted in there the different stories that I would write. And I would, I was writing like stories about, I had a pet pig named Claudia and I wrote different little stories about her when I was little. And then as I got older, I was, I was pretty good in English. I mean, that was what I loved to do. And in high school, I was on the um, newspaper, uh, you know, in the yearbook and all that. And then my mom was a librarian and dad was a pig farmer and I can distinctly remember sitting at the kitchen table with my grandmother Nana and she was asking me this was like in the 10th grade well what do you think you want to do for a career because there was no question that I would go to college that was just expected and 
I said, I, I don't really know. And dad was reading National Hog Farmer. And he threw it down on the table and he said, well, you could, you know, you're a good writer. He said, you could write for something like this. And I looked at it and I thought, I guess maybe there are some actual careers like that. And mom being a librarian, she went and got this uh, list of, there was a book that gave you like what colleges were um, accredited for different uh, degrees. And she said, there's an agricultural journalism degree. And here are the colleges that are accredited for that. And I selected a few. They were all, Ohio State was another one in Colorado State. And it's weird how you just select things. But I said, Ohio State, the city is too big. That's too big of a city. And Colorado State is just a little too far away from Maryland. So, okay, I'll go to Iowa State. <laughs> I didn't know an, I didn't know one person in the entire state of Iowa, but you know they dropped me off at the towers in August and said see you at Christmas, and there was no email or text message or cell phones or anything. <laughs> you were just it it was it was sink or swim, baby. You know you just gutted out. I was horribly homesick, but but then I I met really good friends and you know my husband and life goes on but mm -hmm. um I at that point I was committed to agricultural journalism because I was there at Iowa State and I was going to make it work so I did mm -hmm. and looking back on your career I know it's asking a mother to pick out their favorite child but do you have a memorable story in your career that you just think about often or a series that you talked about another series earlier that you are most well known for but as a journalist what would you pick out as your most memorable story you've written about well the the pork powerhouse series I started in 1994 that started because the hog industry was transitioning to um, I had written about contract feeding and I had written about what was happening in North Carolina and then the contract feeding that came in with uh, Murphy Family Farms into Iowa. But then I got a call from the National Pork Producers Council and Ernie Barnes and he said, we are not, a, we are getting so many calls from people saying, who are the largest pork producers and we are not allowed to give out that information. So if I help you behind the scenes, would you be able to collect that information? And I said, well, I could try. Well, uh, Premium Standard Farms was starting up this huge farm in northern Missouri. And um, that was why a lot of people were calling because it was Wall Street money. And that was very unusual at the time to have investor money in the hog industry. So I called down there nobody answered nobody would take my calls and I went down to the um, premium standard farms they were they had an office and they were building sow farms and I just went in and said I wanted to talk to the guy in charge and they said well we, we're not giving any interviews or whatever and I sat I literally sat in the waiting room until somebody finally came out and said, oh, you're not leaving, are you? Okay, well, I'll talk to you. There's that so. aggressiveness again, you know, <laughs> don't give up. 
So I got that interview. I did the same thing with uh, Bob Christensen at Christensen Farms a year later, a year or two later. I went up there to Sleepy Eye, Minnesota, and I sat in his uh, in his waiting room until he came out. And he's like, you're not leaving, are you? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so that that first pork powerhouses in 1994, which ranked, I believe it was the 40 largest pork producers in the U.S., that was so shocking to people to see how many sales these companies owned that we had people calling us and saying, well, you know, it was a little bit of kill the messenger. Some people like, thanks a lot. You know, uh, we can't compete. So we're quitting. And, and there was one group. I, I remember uh, there was a group of farmers in Illinois who all got together one day at the coffee shop, went over my story and then decided that they, it was time to sell out, that there was no way they could compete with it. So I, I felt, I felt really guilt over that, but it's like, these are the facts. Mm -hmm. And of course, now the numbers of sales that those companies had is minuscule compared to what happened after that. So tracking that every year doing that pork powerhouses report, it, especially in the 90s. The 90s was such a time of transition for the hog industry because it just boomed. And then in 1998, we had this horrible market crash and pigs went down to, you know, the, the lowest uh, ever for inflation, even during the depression. And then it just, uh, a lot of the bigger producers ended up selling out to the packers. So that's when you had the, the packers became the largest producers at that point. Murphy Farms sold to Smithfield and that kind of thing. Press, mm -hmm. uh, so Carol sold to Smithfield. So, so there was always a lot to write about. And that was a story that I continued until I retired. And even after I retired, um, so I did it for 26 years and then I, uh, supported, um, Karen McMahon did the report for successful farming this last fall, did a great job. And I tried to help her as best I can because I, I wanted it to continue. Um, but it just seemed like a, it, it was a great time for me to, uh, retire and walk away from it at that point. We'll be right back to Betsy's interview after a short break. I'd like to recognize our podcast sponsor, Wiffles Hybrids, an independently owned seed company where corn is their business. My co-host Holly Spangler and I recently interviewed Jill Lore, Wiffles Communications Manager, about their award-winning PR campaign and their sponsorship of this podcast. Be sure to listen to the episode on all major podcast platforms. And a big thank you to Jill and the entire Wiffles team for supporting Above the Fold podcast with the Ag Communicators Network. Before our break, Betsy talked about the Pork Powerhouse series that she wrote for over 26 years as Successful Farming. Those stories were very impactful for a lot of readers and swine operations. And I, I asked her about the contradiction she had of being a journalist and reporting on topics that affected people's livelihoods. Yet her duty to report on information 
that readers don't want to know, but they need to know about. I did work for a few years in the 80s, um, in between being the assistant swine editor and then being the livestock editor, I worked for three years as the uh, farm chemicals editor. And it was because our farm chemicals editor had retired uh, and it was a promotion for me. I did not enjoy that. I always liked the uh, livestock more than the crops, but there was some challenges then with a, a chemical that was carrying over and killing the crop the next year. And, you know, I had to report on that and the, the company didn't want me to report that. And, um, you know, I kind of like mildly threatened me. That, well, of course, you know, we all take advertising. So you, you have to do your job, even though you know that in that case, it was not going to make one of our advertisers happy. But but like you said, the, the more challenging thing is when you write stories and you know that farm families are going to be like, well, look at this story. Now I realize I can't compete in this industry anymore. I'm never going to be large enough or um, you write stories that uh, touch somebody and, you know, it, it causes them to think about their family structure in farming or something like that. Um, it can be a challenge. And of course, we're not always, you try to remain objective, but mm -hmm. there's really no way you can. We all know that because mm -hmm. you're making decisions on what stories you want to select to write mm -hmm. and which ones you don't. But it's tough, it really yeah. is. Like you said, having thick skin and being aggressive reporting the facts that's what the journalist's job is to do it, it is you do have to have thick skin I will say one thing you also have to remember over your career and the only way that I could do the pork powerhouses report for 26 years talking to some of the same people year after year is you do have to always respect if they say this is off the record, I do not want this published, then you have to always abide by that. Uh, because if you don't, you'll never be able to have that trust and respect. So over the years, 90% of what I was told in the swine industry never was published because it was told to me in confidence. And that is tricky. Um, you have to use it as background. You have to, you can use it to help you figure out who else you need to interview and all that. But um, you can't really, you cannot burn people. And, and I know that's true. There's a lot of sources that all of us use in the industry, whether it's university sources or agronomy companies or with different different companies that advertise in our magazine or whatever it might be, you really do have to respect that. And, um, and, you know, if you're interviewing a family farmer for a story, you have to respect that. Um, and I think we do a great job of that in agricultural journalism is a very, it's a very kind uh, industry compared to some others in, mm -hmm. you know, in the journalism world. Mm -hmm. Betsy, I want to touch upon another topic that I think is very interesting from your career. 
So besides um, your short two-week stint at the newspaper, you were at Successful Farming for your entire career, correct? Yes. So nowadays, more so in the younger generations, that's unheard of, of, you know, of staying at a company for so long. Tell me about, was that always an active decision for you? Did you ever think about maybe moving on to another company or what made you stay at Successful Farming for your entire career? <laughs> it is unheard of nowadays, isn't it? It's it's unusual. There, It was not unheard of when I started at Successful Farming and started at Merida. There were many, many uh, lifelong career people who worked at Successful Farming and worked at Merida Corporation at Better Homes and Gardens or the other magazines. Um, so you went there with the expectation that if you liked it and they liked you, you know, it could be a lifelong career. You could move up the, um, at that time, it was basically, you were an assistant editor and then you were associate editor and then you were a senior editor. And if you kept moving from there, you could be a managing editor or an executive editor and then editor-in-chief. That was kind of the mindset. Um, and that's broken down at this point. Um, but there were many people, uh, mainly men, who I worked with early on that stayed at Successful Farming their entire careers. So I guess I did not think for many years, I did not think about moving somewhere else. There were quite a few editors though, who did move. Um, Farm Journal started up some publications in the eighties and they sucked away several editors at Successful Farming over the years. And there were others who went other places. It became more common, I guess. Um, and then the farm crisis hit right after I was hired in 1984. And so I was kind of the last one in um, and then as people retired or they went to a competitor, it, the staff just shrunk. And then we also started up a magazine called Country America. And there were a, a bunch of successful farming editors who switched over to that. And so I'll just give you an example. In the livestock side of successful farming, when I started, there were two swine editors, two beef editors, and a dairy editor. And by, let's see, it would have been, um, you know, five, six years, I was the livestock editor. You know, that, that's, how it, that's how it shrunk at that point. I guess I did occasionally think of other, I had offers over the years, but Meredith paid well. We, I had a great freedom in stories that I wanted to work on. I loved my job. It was uh, really, I mean, it sounds trite, but you know, the people that you worked with, I had a lot of friends and really good people. Meredith was owned by one, well, we were publicly traded, but the Meredith family owned the majority of the voting stock. It was a very stable company for a hundred plus years. There was no reason to go anywhere else. My husband was a veterinarian. Um, 
So no, I mean, I, I know it's unusual, but the funny thing is my husband was a veterinarian at the same vet clinic for his entire career. My sister, who I talked about earlier, graduated in ag business from Penn State, took a job with Farm Credit, and she's just retiring from there in a month after her whole career there. So, and I, and my best friend growing up spent her whole career working for DuPont. So, you know, it is odd today, but in our generation, it was still, it was still being done. And I have to admit when I've had people over the years who have applied for jobs that working with me, if I look at their resume and they had five jobs in seven years, that was a red flag to me. I just, to me, that doesn't show any loyalty. It doesn't show any desire to just make it work. I mean, I had many days, many months, and a couple of years where I didn't enjoy my job as much as some other times. And I just gutted it out. You know, like I said, that farm chemicals job, that, that was not my favorite three years of working there. Not stories that I really wanted to write, but I knew that if I did that job well, I might get promoted on the other end of that. And so that was my goal. And I did. So you just keep working your way up. And at some point, um, I, I also got to do some different things. Like, even though I was at the same company, I got to cover, I, I started living the country life and worked on that for 15 years, um, which was for people who lived on acreages. So that was, that was unusual. And I got to do a TV show for six years. I did, was the voice of a radio show for five years. The last two years working at Successful Farming, I was running the website in charge of the editorial side of the website. So I've done a lot of different things in media working for the same company, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'd have to agree with you on the red flag that you had seen, because, you know, as a younger professional myself, you do get discouraged in jobs and no job is perfect whatsoever. My friend and I actually recently had a conversation about that. There's times where you want to quit, you want to give up, but you know, there's also good times and good experiences that help you prepare for that next step, wherever it might become, whether it's inside your company. I think what's crucial is to look at if you're growing, if you're not feeling challenged anymore, or if you're maybe becoming complacent, then maybe look into another opportunity. But then also circling back to our conversation at the beginning, look for ways where you could grow maybe inside your company, introduce new ideas, you know, and, and have that loyalty to that company. Yeah, I, you know, I think if you're bored in your job, that falls on you because in journalism, you should be able to come up with new ideas, come up with some new stories, some, some new challenges that you can um, go to your boss with. Uh, and yes, there are days, I had days in my career where I would come, you know, I would cry in my boss's office or I tried not to do that very often. I think of two times that I did that or days when I would come home and I would just, you know, vent to my husband. Um, so it's not all 
roses and champagne. I mean, good golly, you just have to gut it out. There were some stories that I was, you know, didn't really enjoy working on and and deadlines that's like, oh my gosh, I mean, how am I going to get all this done? But um, I know so many people in my career who work places, whether it was at Meredith or whether it was at our competitors or other publishers or companies who the grass was always greener and they would jump ship and then they would hate it and they would say, wow, I really... I, I actually loved working at Meredith and Successful Farming or whatever. And um, they didn't last long at the place that they jumped to. I would advise people, especially if you are jumping somewhere, just because they're offering you $5,000 more in your salary or something, think very hard before. If you, if you were with a good company with it, it, with work that you enjoy, don't just jump for a couple thousand dollars in pay. And when I was young and when I was starting out, I was putting Bob through vet school. We needed every dime we could make. And there were a lot more, uh, there were a lot of jobs that paid more than, a, than an assistant swine editor. But you just have to think, think ahead at that point to the future you know, I could have jumped into an advertising agency or working, doing um, communications for a company for more money, but that isn't what I wanted to do. I always wanted to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. So stick it out. And I, I'm not saying you shouldn't switch jobs for a promotion and that kind of thing, but but you need to think about it very closely because that little extra bit of money if it's not what you want to do is not going to be worth it sure betsy to wrap up our conversation here looking back reflecting on your career is there anything you wish you would have done differently and what would you tell your 20 year old self looking back now oh gosh um you know, I, I, I look back with no regrets. I, I try not to, to have regrets, really. Um, I wish maybe my, in my 20s, I was very focused on, you know, just putting bread on the table, getting Bob through vet school. We had, a, we had our first child when uh, he was still in vet school. I was so busy with having kids, working. Um, I did not probably talk to some of, I don't want to say my elders, but there were a lot of people with many, many years of experience that I could have had some interesting conversations with and, and taken some advice from that I didn't have time for. Um, and uh, so that would have been, that would have been uh something it, it's funny when I was working there I started when I was 21 there it seemed to me that all those men who were editors at Successful Farming they were you know these old men and I realize now they were in their like mid to late 30s <laughs> it's like your, your perspective is so different 
at that point. But um, now that I am, you know, retired, it's like I'm I'm in their shoes. I was probably, oh, I hope I wasn't disrespectful to my elders, but I was probably quite um, brash and annoying, you know, in a way. There are so many stresses you have in your 20s. The 20s is a very stressful time of life because you're just trying to uh, make a go of it in, in your um, career and with everything else going on in your life. It's a challenge and I, I didn't appreciate uh, the wider world around me maybe, but you're so focused on your own life. And, and you're probably, you think of the older people in their careers, you think of them as, oh, what a bunch of old fogies. They don't understand what it's like to be blah, blah, blah. And then you get to that age and you're like, wow, um, you know, now I have all this experience and I've got to figure out some, some way to use it. Is there anything next for you? I know you're in retirement. Is there anything you're continuing to do in journalism or are you enjoying the retired life? Well, I kind of told myself the first year I was not going to take on any freelance assignments. I was going to take a year after 37 years, I was going to take like a sabbatical. And, but what I did was I'm on a, a couple different uh, organizations and on a board and, and I have done some writing for free for them. I've done some interviews and um, I had one thing recently published in our online local newspaper, just some local things. And then I have been transcribing and editing my mom's journals, uh, which is something that I wanted to do, but I never had time for. So I'm still working on that. Um, but yeah, we've just been doing a lot of traveling. We have two new grandkids in North Carolina. My mom is elderly, lives in Maryland. So it's, it's been great. It's just been, I'll tell you the best thing about being retired is, and um, retired from a corporation. I mean, I spent 37 years with a corporation. You have a set number of days for vacation, a set number of sick days. You have to get permission to take time off. You have bosses and their bosses and their bosses of the corporate structure. You retire, you have none of that. I don't have to answer to a boss. I don't have to ask permission to travel, to take time off. If I don't feel good, I don't have to mark down a sick day. You know, that is, that is, a, is a wonderful thing. And so my last piece of advice <laughs> for somebody in their, okay, here's advice for people in their 20s. When I started out at Successful Farming at Meredith, there was an old guy. He was probably 40. <laughs> I think I thought of him as old. He came into my office and he said, look, you need to put aside money in this 401k thing, which I had never heard of. But he said, you need to put money in that at least to the level that Meredith matches it. And this was kind of new then. And I said, okay, but I'm putting my husband through vet school. We need every bit of money we can get. He said, look, you'll never see that money. And you will thank me when you retire, which seemed like a life, you know, who, how many years and decades would that be? 
but I did it. And at the time he said, put it in Meredith stock. And then like I did. And then like 10 years later, I realized that's not a good idea to have all your money in a company stock. So then I switched and I uh, quit buying stock and did other things. But my point is I always put the maximum amount allowed in my 401k. And if you do that, then you get 37 years in and you feel like you are comfortable enough to retire. So, so that's what I would tell you is it doesn't have to be a 401k, but a savings account of some kind that you just put money into it. You never see it, never take it out, leave it in there. And then you will have that so that you can retire and not have to, uh, answer to anybody about you know anyway that's my lame advice but great it's advice harder. great advice it, it is harder today I realize that because I actually had a pension too which nobody has anymore and they don't even have them at the corporation anymore they grandfathered you know I was grandfathered in but mm-hmm. I realized that I was lucky to have that that's very good practical advice and one I think many young professionals should listen to because I took that advice about a year ago and thinking I need to do something now and I can't keep putting it off so go out explore your options see what you can do and just start whether you know you can start with a small amount start somewhere yep absolutely that that's that's great advice and then you know as as you go on in life just uh make, I was pretty conservative and, um, make decisions, you know, save as much as you can. I guess that's the bottom line, right? Yeah. There you go. Well, Betsy, last question. Is there anything you wanted to mention that we didn't talk about or anything else you want to leave us with? I'm so happy that you ended with that because that was my advice that you always ask that. And sometimes people say, no, there really isn't anything. (laughs) I typically end all podcast interviews with that question of, is there anything else you'd like to share? But now after Betsy's interview, I'll be sure to end every interview with that question because you never know what your next topic or idea will be, and you can have a conversation with someone that can lead to that. I want to give and extend a big thank you to Betsy Fries for her willingness to interview and reflect back on her accomplished career in ag journalism. Some of the lessons I learned from this interview were to be direct and assertive in what you want, ask a lot of questions, pitch ideas, and don't take no for an answer. I always think of when someone says no, that really means a not yet, and circle back around when you can. It was great advice for all. Thank you again to our podcast sponsor, Wiffles Hybrids. On the next episode, you'll hear from Harlan Persinger as we reflect on his journey to operate his own photography business and the lessons he learned along the way. I'm Kelsey Litchfield. Thanks for listening to this episode of Above the Fold with the Ag Communicators Network.
Above the Fold with the Ag Communicators Network is edited by C3 Studios, a full-service podcast and audio production agency. For more information about our services and to work with our team, please visit ColleenCallahan.com.